0: Content warning. The following episode includes discussion of pregnancy termination, sexual assault, gun violence, and domestic terrorism. Listener discretion is advised. The 1949 fiction, 1984, is a classic and a favorite of millions because of its compelling story and riveting image of a society deeply entrenched in totalitarianism. Many of us think of the setting, a world where everything, including history, geography, the government, who is at war with who, who's the enemy, individual and collective thought, and even time itself, is heavily controlled. That control comes from a compartmentalized bureaucracy The head personified as Big Brother, who could be seen on telescreens, a concept that was ahead of its time. Of all the concepts in 1984, one of the most insidious is the culture of surveillance. Neighbor spies on neighbor, children spy on parents, even to the point of children being encouraged to turn against their parents. Such a surveillance culture tears at the trust that is the fabric of interpersonal relationships. Totalitarianism is a style of governance characterized by one-party government, loyalty to the state, and high control over the public and private life of its citizens. Orwell based 1984 on totalitarian governments that at the time were characteristic of the Soviet Union and its communist satellites. While totalitarianism is often associated with communism, Totalitarian governments do not have to be communist. Nazi Germany, as well as the Taliban and ISIS today, are examples of non-communist, non-socialist, yet totalitarian governments, and cannot be construed by an honest read of history and international relations to be left wing. Surveillance culture is a key feature of totalitarianism, and when we think about it in the context of novels, such as 1984, It's scary to think about. It's one of the many reasons why the setting and plot of 1984 is considered dystopian. It's the kind of world that few would truly want to live in. Yet as the United States of America plods toward democracy's end, surveillance culture has arrived. And in allowing it to exist in the great state of Texas, the U.S. Supreme Court has rolled out the red carpet for a totalitarian future. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Pot Starer Podcast. Welcome to Pot Stirrer Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide, and it's not always polite. This episode I had considered waiting to make. I thought to myself, if the right for women and girls to access procedures to terminate their pregnancies, in other words, abortion rights, are officially rescinded in the United States, this would be the episode I would record. But the more I thought about it, the more I decided, why wait? Texas recently passed a law, known as Senate Bill 8, that outlaws abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. To give you an idea, This is around the time that many women and girls find out they're pregnant, so it allows virtually no time to decide how to proceed with the pregnancy. It also makes it more difficult for women and girls who have irregular periods, so they may not even know they're pregnant until after the six-week mark. That aspect of the Texas anti-abortion law is rough enough, but there's another part of the law that is honestly pretty chilling. The enforcement capability is not in the hands of the state government. Rather, it's in the hands of individual citizens. It allows citizens to file lawsuits against anyone who aids and abets an abortion. If successful, these citizens can be awarded up to $10,000. The U.S. Supreme Court has not formally decided on the constitutionality of this law and decided to sidestep this question. specifically. At issue with this and other laws that restrict abortion is the precedent of Roe v. Wade, the landmark 1973 Supreme Court decision that affirmed a pregnant woman's right to privacy, including the right to seek an abortion, unregulated by the state during the first trimester and regulated in the second trimester only in ways reasonably related to maternal health. Interestingly enough, Roe also involved anti-abortion laws in Texas. But in the case of Senate Bill 8, the Supreme Court ruled 5 to 4 against providing injunctive relief. In other words, it declined to stop the law from going into effect. The enforcement structure seems to be the loophole allowing the law to proceed. The law itself is problematic for a number of reasons. It ignores the fact that abortion is rarely a decision come to flippantly. It's not an easy decision for most women and girls, and there are a lot of variables involved. The circumstances by which she became pregnant, the stability of her relationship, if there is one, with her child's father, her financial circumstances, life circumstances, the existence of a support system. Abortion is not a form of birth control, and hardly anyone uses it that way. While abortions are typically restricted in the latter months of pregnancy, the final trimester, around the time that a fetus could live outside the womb, this law restricts the time someone who is pregnant can have an abortion to a much shorter period of time, at six weeks gestation. And while we're talking about six weeks, it's sort of a misnomer. The six-week cutoff for obtaining an abortion in the state of Texas isn't really a six-week cutoff. When gestational age or how far along a woman is in her pregnancy, is calculated. What's factored in is about two weeks before conception, including when the woman ovulates and the date of her last period. So when we're talking six weeks along, the pregnancy itself is more like four weeks along. Maybe, it depends, because not every woman has regular cycles. And there are a number of women who might not even know they're pregnant until it's too late terminate their pregnancies. And there aren't any real exceptions, not for rape, not for incest, only for endangerment of a woman's life and if the pregnancy can lead to, quote, substantial and irreversible impairment of a major bodily function, end quote, which is sort of vague. And this is already affecting people. There are stories already of women who are dealing with pregnancies, planned pregnancies wanted pregnancies that are not viable yet they have not miscarried and these women who are already dealing with such heartbreaking news are then forced to go through multiple tests in order for the doctors to feel comfortable knowing they're within the bounds of the law in order to terminate the pregnancy this is horrific and this will only get worse much worse Abortion restrictions like the one in Texas places the value of the fetus over the bodily autonomy of a living, breathing person. And it's not because anti-abortion advocates truly value fetal personhood. Are they advocating for, say, child support, tax deductions, public assistance, or COVID stimulus packages to count fetuses as dependents? Even those who oppose abortion see limits in considering fetuses' persons. So if it's not really about valuing the fetus as a full-fledged human life, what is it truly about? Really, what it comes down to is that Texas has designated women and girls as human incubators. And I know I keep saying women and girls, because even for children, girls who are too young to become mothers and are too young to have been able to consent to the act that led to pregnancy. They already lost their autonomy in becoming pregnant to begin with, and with laws like this one, and hardcore restrictions in other places like Ohio and Indiana, young girls are forced into being human incubators according to the state, no matter if that harms their futures, their developing psyches, or their growing bodies. And it's not like it's a matter of abortion being some kind of epidemic. Abortion is already in a decline and has been over the past four decades. And in recent years, the primary driver hasn't been restrictions on abortion. According to the Guttmacher Institute, the decline in abortion, especially in recent years, has been due to a decrease in pregnancies and births overall. There are a number of reasons speculated for this decline in pregnancies and births, including increased contraceptive use and rising infertility. Point is, abortion is decreasing, but while abortion opponents often discuss abortion as a numbers issue, as if there are so many. Seeing abortion decrease further isn't enough for them. Rather, they want to see abortion made illegal pretty much entirely. And suffice it to say that making abortion illegal is not the same thing as ending it, but they often conflate the two. Now before I go on, I want to make something clear. Do I believe that every person who is against abortion is a hardcore right-wing Christian Republican? No, not necessarily. There are people who oppose abortion who are Republican, Democrat, and of other political persuasions. There have been tensions within the Democratic Party regarding abortion because some Democratic voters and a few Democratic politicians hold anti-abortion views. And there's always that question as to how that ideological diversity is reconciled within a party that, at this point in time, identifies as pro-choice. Not all Christian traditions and sects are anti-abortion, but anti-abortion views are not limited to conservative evangelicals and Catholics. In other religious faiths, there are a diversity of viewpoints on abortion based on the tenets of their faith, even among Abrahamic faiths, there's debate over abortion based on faith texts, including scripture, and views from clergy. And some oppose abortion on grounds other than religious faith. And then, even among people who oppose abortion on religious grounds, not all of them hold consistently right wing views on all other issues, and not all are single issue voters. Now, I do think that single issue voting. Specifically in regards to abortion, is pretty much a myth, but that's a discussion for another day. If you'd like me to flush that out more, let me know and I can talk more about that in a future episode, either as part of a longer, full fledged one or as a shorter bonus. So, in any case, I wanted to give that caveat because of what I'm going to say next, because the bulk of my energy here is for the advocates and the activists the politicians, and the pundits. There's variation in terms of the political and religious beliefs of those who oppose abortion. Now, I first gave a summary of the Texas anti-abortion law, as well as the anti-abortion position on its own merits. If you haven't figured it out already, I'm pro-choice. I used to take an anti-abortion position back when I was an evangelical Christian, but I've always been uneasy about the so-called pro-life movement. What I struggled with even then was that the mantra being pro-life didn't seem to extend to other issues, such as public assistance and social services, not to mention the death penalty. The once-you're-born-you're-on-your-own implications from those who claimed that their anti-abortion position is rooted in respect for life felt, I don't know, fake? I'm not out here saying that everyone must go and have an abortion. The label anti-abortion advocates use for people who are pro-choice, pro-abortion, is largely propaganda. Those of us who are pro-choice, in general, aren't out here pushing women and girls to go have an abortion, safe, legal, and rare, as the old saying goes. What most pro-choice people are advocating is for choice. Pregnancy is difficult, even in the best of circumstances. Having a baby and raising one is also difficult, even in the best of circumstances. It should not be up to me or anyone else what someone does with their pregnancy. Circumstances are unique. The health of pregnant persons is unique. And all that plays into what may be a very difficult decision as to whether to continue with a pregnancy or to terminate it. And that discussion should be between the pregnant person and her doctor, not the church, not your neighbors, and definitely not the government. But while there are various reasons for individuals to hold views on abortion that fall along the spectrum, my main problem isn't really with individuals who are anti-abortion. My main problem is with the anti-abortion movement, a movement that is extremely problematic rooted in the desire to have the federal government grant tax-exempt status to private, whites-only schools, segregation academies. The foundation of the so-called pro-life movement is rotten, and the movement is rotten as a result. Let's continue. I wonder if the purpose of the anti-abortion movement is to preserve life, meaning fetuses, or to restrict the bodily autonomy of the female sex. Those are two separate aims, and there will be times where these interests conflict. But here's the thing, very few people on either side of this issue view the human fetus as a full-on person, even if they claim they do. Outside of laws that explicitly address abortion, fetuses are not treated as dependents for the sake of the US Census and therefore political representation, nor for insurance purposes, or as I mentioned earlier, for child support or public assistance. And it's not like anti-abortion activists, who swerping down that abortion is murder, are also pushing for any of these changes that would also recognize fetal personhood. The only place where a fetus is recognized as a person outside of abortion law is in the penal code. 38 states have fetal homicide laws. In other words, we're talking about violent acts. Usually, murder of a pregnant person that also leads to the death of the fetus. If a pregnancy is involuntarily terminated in the commission of a crime against a pregnant woman, the death of the fetus counts as murder. In practice, you'll typically see this as a double homicide charge if a pregnant person is killed. 29 of those states count a terminated pregnancy at any stage as murder. Some who are anti abortion point to the existence of these laws as support for their argument that abortion is murder. But unfortunately, our memories are short. Fetal homicide laws are a fairly recent development. When these laws were hotly debated, the primary argument made was that pregnancy is often the time when women are the most vulnerable to domestic violence and murder is one of the leading causes of death among pregnant women. So the idea was to reflect the extreme heinousness of killing a vulnerable pregnant woman. But even back then, the primary pushback in regards to these laws was that it would elevate the fetus to personhood, and this could have implications down the line for abortion. Now, in response, these laws were given caveats that exempt abortion. But considering that years later, After these legislative fights have been mostly forgotten, some people point to the existence of fetal homicide laws as some kind of proof or support for their belief that abortion is murder. This only serves to prove the concerns of pro-choice advocates correct. Many anti-abortion advocates claim they're pro-life. Pro-life is a marketing term to make the anti-abortion cause appear to be noble virtuous, all about valuing life. A woman is to be inconvenienced for nine months, give or take, in order to give birth to another human life. And if that inconvenience truly means long-term or lifelong damage to her body, or even the endangerment of her life, so be it. She should be more than willing to sacrifice her health and even her life for the life of her unborn baby. So The government should mandate it. Yet, if it was about mandating sacrifice, then why don't we do this for, say, organ transplants? There are lists of people waiting on organ transplants in order to save their lives. Of course, some organ transplants require the donor to die, but not all do. Liver and kidney transplants come to mind. And especially when it comes to liver transplants, if you give a part of your liver that piece will regenerate. So the inconvenience to the donor is presumably temporary. Yet we do not force anyone to give their organs to another, even if it's their family member. If your living, breathing child needs a liver transplant and you're a match, you can legally say no. And there is not a government body in the United States that will force you To give up part of your liver to save your kid. Not a one. But Jay, if someone chooses not to be an organ donor, they're not ending that person's life. Just choosing not to save it. But with abortion, a mother is choosing to end the baby's life. It's not the same. It kind of is though. Both choices come down to bodily autonomy. Organs are not all interchangeable. The donor organ must be compatible with the recipient body. The degree to which they must match, from my understanding, depends on the organ. But my point is that if a potential donor matches with a recipient and the match declines, it's not like there are necessarily a bunch of other people waiting in the wings who could step in and donate. The recipient may die due to the choice of the match not to donate. In this situation, bodily autonomy, consent, trumps saving a life. And in the case of organ transplants, it's undisputed as to if the life we're saving is considered a full-fledged person. While a fetus is human, personhood, how we define that and if a fetus checks those boxes, that's in dispute, that's hotly contested. But even if you consider a fetus a person, the idea of choosing not to save a life versus active termination is a distinction without a difference. The anti-abortion movement wants to focus on the status of the fetus and elevate it to the status of a living, breathing baby. Because that pulls at the heartstrings, it makes it easier to buy an argument that dismisses bodily autonomy and consent out of hand without fully considering the implications of disregarding it. And let's talk about the fact that while the anti-abortion lobby is forcing women to carry their pregnancies to term, they're not so concerned about improving the lives of the pregnant women and girls who will be human incubators, or what can be done to support the lives of these children and their families once they're born. The anti abortion lobby cares little for actual life. As I mentioned earlier, pro life is marketing. Pro life is a lie. There's been little focus on the higher rates of maternal mortality in the United States compared to other post industrialized countries, especially among black, Latina, and indigenous women. Among similar countries, the U.S. is the only country not to guarantee access to health provider home visits nor paid postpartum parental leave. According to a study by the Commonwealth Fund, no advocacy by anti-abortion advocates for the funding and beefing up of social services or public assistance, or the improvement of foster care. The anti-abortion lobby, which is solidly right wing, says that they don't want their tax dollars going towards welfare or social services. Government bad, okay. But that supposed distrust of government doesn't seem to extend to the police state. There's also little support on their part for universal health care so that the babies and their families remain alive and healthy after birth. The American love affair with the privatized health insurance model means we spend a ton on health care, more than most other western countries even when factoring in taxation, but without better health outcomes. The anti-abortion lobby is not concerned with actual life. pro life is a lie. And let's not forget that there's a great deal of overlap between those who support forced birth and those who have no problem with gun violence and mass murder. These folks love to make excuses for white mass shooters. They're troubled, they were sad, they have mental health problems. While not wanting the government to fund mental health resources and in the process of spinning this narrative ignoring that most people with mental health challenges are not going to shoot up your local school mall or church and in so doing further stigmatizing mental health struggles and a lot of these same people only care about gun violence when they want to use gun violence statistics to paint urban democrat cities such as chicago baltimore and detroit cities with significant black populations, as morally inferior and incapable of self-governance. Let's call a spade a spade here. I ain't come to play. Pro-life is a lie from the pit of hell. Now, much like the right wing treats the issue of poverty, the right wing wants the issue of babies born to struggling parents in dangerous conditions with few resources, to be dealt with in a way that will allow their lobby to maintain control. When it comes to poverty, the right wing wants to deal with it through charity. If you're poor, hopefully some benevolent individuals, religious organizations, or some other nonprofit might deem you as the deserving poor and give you a little help. But if you're not considered deserving, maybe you have substance abuse issues. Maybe you had children out of wedlock. You might be the wrong nationality or status or perhaps you don't identify as heterosexual or you're not cisgender. These individuals and organizations may not see you as deserving and therefore you're on your own. I don't oppose charity, but charitable organizations do not have the capacity to solve poverty in the same large-scale way that the government does. And some of these charities are just as concerned with control as they are with compassion. And as hard as the right wing lobbies for religious freedom exemptions from having to provide charitable services to LGBTQ people in dire straits, it's clear that some are even more concerned about control as opposed to compassion. pro life is a lie. And adoption. Let's talk about adoption. Adoption as the solution to abortion is problematic in a similar way. Instead of sustaining babies through supporting their families of birth, the anti-abortion lobby, a right-wing movement, says, Don't abort. Adoption is the answer. But some children are considered more worthy or in demand than others. White babies without special needs are the most in demand it's much harder to adopt out children of color or children of any race or ethnicity who has special needs or has passed the infant stage. For some children, especially those who have become adoptable while in foster care, adoption simply doesn't happen. And they're left to the government programs and the institutions that the right wing is so against funding. And let's say adoption happens. We often don't take the time to recognize that adoption, to varying degrees, is trauma to adoptees. And I say that in the sense that adoptees are being removed from their families of birth to be adopted into a different family. In some cases, that birth family could be toxic, which is a tragedy in and of itself. In other cases, it's more that the birth parents are not in a position to care for a child for one reason or another, and feel that placing the child With a different family will give that child a better life but regardless of the why adoption represents disconnection with an adoptee's family of birth this could lead to feelings of abandonment difficulty with connecting to others struggle with identity and feelings of belonging even in the best of adoptive situations adoptees may have these issues to some degree Anti-abortion advocates often fail to recognize that adoption comes with its own challenges. And let's not forget, unfortunately, adoptions fail. This is referred to as adoption disruption. It's estimated that in the United States, about 10% of adoptions fall apart between placement and finalization. And between 1 and 3% of adoptions are disrupted after finalization typically due to needs the child has that the adoptive parents don't feel they can support. And adoption disruption rates vary by age, with the failure rate for infant adoptions at under 1%, while 30% of teen adoptions fail. Overall, I do support adoption. I grew up in a family built in part through adoption. And there are a lot of children who are living and breathing in our need of loving homes, loving families that are willing to step into parental roles, family roles, accept them as their own, and support and guide them through life. But for these reasons and more, adoption does not fix all the problems that lead to abortion, and it's disingenuous for anti-abortion advocates to paint it that way. But like right-wing solutions to poverty, adoption as a solution to unwanted pregnancy can be used as another form of control. Many agencies are run by religious organizations, and some of these organizations have used their status to control who is fit to adopt, based more on their faith and cultural standards than which prospective parents might be in the best position to provide what a child truly needs. This has meant discrimination against LGBTQ prospective parents. And it has meant transracial placements, usually in the form of children of color adopted by white families without regard for if those families will be attentive to teaching the culture the adopted child comes from or will support them through any discrimination or difficulties they may face due to their background. For example, prominent anti-abortion activists and 2020 Republican National Convention Speaker Abby Johnson, who is white, stated that police would be smart to racially profile her black son due to statistics. Now imagine for a moment being a black child who was harassed by police for no apparent reason except the color of your skin. And instead of your parents' supporting you through this trying time, or being upset on your behalf. They don't support you because they identify more with the officer who assumes you're a criminal than you, the son or daughter they have raised from birth that they claim to love like their own. White supremacy is a hell of a drug. Her life is a lie. The anti-abortion lobby is not interested in life. The anti-abortion lobby, as part of America's right wing, aims to achieve not the saving of lives, but control and political power. At the end of World War II, after the Allied powers, led by Britain, the Soviet Union, France, and later the United States, defeated the Axis powers headed by Nazi Germany, japan and italy the allies had to get down to the business of what now they won the axis lost war criminals were being prosecuted in nuremberg how do we keep another world war from happening yet again while the u.s and the soviet union were on the same side during the war their relationship had been deteriorating the soviets were communist and at the time were led by Joseph Stalin, a totalitarian leader with his own high body count. The United States was capitalist, with democracy for white Americans, and varying levels of oppression for everyone else. Both had emerged as superpowers after the war, and wanted to increase their spheres of influence beyond their borders. This played out while the Allies were trying to figure out how to approach handling a post-war Germany, and would also affect how Germany would be governed for the next 40 years. Lands that Germany annexed during the war would be returned to their rightful owners, and what was now left of Germany would be under Allied occupation. During the occupation, Germany was divided into four sections, one section each for Britain, France, the US, and the Soviet Union. The country's capital of Berlin was in the middle of the Soviet zone, but due to its symbolic importance, would also be split in four and occupied by each of the largest Allied powers. While in theory, the occupation was slated to be administered jointly, in practice, the Allied powers ran their occupied zones in ways that mirrored their own governing philosophies. By the end of the decade, As Germany would regain its independence under the auspices of the Allied powers, Germany would not be one country, but two. In 1948, the British, American, and French zones were merged, and in 1949, these capitalist democratic powers formed the Federal Republic of Germany, or West Germany. In response, the Soviet zone would also go independent, in a way, but in their case as a satellite of the Soviet Union. The new communist totalitarian Germany would be called the German Democratic Republic, or East Germany. Over the next four decades, the two Germanys would exist as a symbol of the two major superpowers in the Cold War that existed where the U.S. and the Soviet Union would be at odds, but without directly fighting each other. While they didn't directly fight each other, they would fight in other ways. They were constantly one-upping each other with nuclear weapons, foreign aid, and more. The space race accelerated because of their rivalry. The countries engaged in proxy wars, where other countries would fight each other on the superpowers' behalf, or one of the superpowers would back a third country to fight the other superpower. The Vietnam War and the Afghanistan War of the 1980s were a couple of examples. There was also tension between East Germany and West Germany, as some would defect or leave one country permanently for the other, usually this would be East Germans leaving for West Germany, where there were more resources and economic opportunities. This bleeding of human capital led to a number of things the Berlin Wall most famously built in 1961 to keep East Germans from escaping to West Berlin as the gateway to the capitalist West Germany, and the West more generally. Within a heavily controlled East Germany, the East German government did not want for their citizens to defect to the West. This largely one-way flow reflected badly on our system of governance, and as a Soviet satellite, they did not want to admit that their citizens were suffering or otherwise unhappy. Besides the wall and other lesser-known symbols of oppression within East Germany was a government agency called the Ministry for State Security, also known as the Stasi. The Stasi's job was to surveil its citizens for any signs of subversion or disloyalty to the state. Getting caught up with the Stasi had real consequences. During its 40-year existence, the agency was responsible for the arrests of a quarter million people as political prisoners. And even those who weren't arrested were not safe from the Stasi's reach. In some cases, the agency would engage in a practice called Zersetzung, which was a targeted and systematic use of information they had gathered to wage psychological attacks on suspected dissidents, destroying their mental health and relationships in hopes that it would reduce the possibility of them engaging in anti-government activities. Now, the Stasi recorded its citizens doing both the obviously subversive and the ridiculously mundane. In one example, in 1978, three kids were playing soccer on the West German side and kicked a ball over the Berlin Wall by mistake. Whoops the Stasi took pictures of the ball and its position in relation to the wall. They measured the distance from the wall to where the ball landed and made sure these three children were not a threat before giving the ball back to them. In another example from 1980, the Stasi were staking out a home that had been placed under surveillance when they recorded one of their own, a senior Stasi member, entering and leaving that home. Come to find out, The official was there because he was having an affair with a colleague. The Stasi found ingenious ways of recording things. During a time before smartphones, they were able to fit cameras inside purses, books, bras, even casts for broken bones. But their greatest weapon was the public. The Stasi weaponized their own citizens against each other by encouraging them to be informants turning in information about the people in their lives including neighbors co-workers and family members that they suspected of being dissidents according to some estimates one in every six and a half east german citizens were informants for the stasi what essentially was a widespread stitch culture had real consequences for individual east germans when anyone you know or many anyone's could be spying on you, even those who are closest to you. That erodes personal relationships. An article in The Atlantic, written by Charlotte Bailey, discusses the long-lasting effects. While the Stasi folded with the reunification of Germany in 1990, those who lived under the East German regime had dealt with feelings of mistrust and difficulty in forming close bonds with others. A couple of the people interviewed for the article discovered upon reading their now publicly available Stasi file that those who informed on them were close friends and even significant others. The Stasi also had long-lasting consequences for Germany as a country. Today, Germany is known for having a particularly strong privacy culture. With strict laws surrounding online data, DNA testing, and public photography among other things. For example, Google has had an especially difficult time building out Google Street View in Germany due to their privacy laws, which has made Street View in Germany pretty much a failure. This privacy culture is a result of having had a government in their past that heavily invaded the privacy of its citizens. And also, many Germans are hesitant to share their true political views especially those who lived in East Germany prior to reunification. Of course, everyone is entitled to keep their politics private, but part of a healthy democracy is the ability to organize, to lobby, and to protest without fear of reprisal from the government. A surveillance culture silences dissent, and that is by design. So let's go back to the United States. While restricting whether or not a woman or girl has a say in what happens to her body for nine months at a time is extremely invasive, it's the citizen informant aspect of the Texas law that is particularly problematic from a democracy perspective. This law asks the public to surveil and turn in their fellow citizens, and in a capitalist twist, collect a possible bounty of up to 10 grand what would be considered reason enough to suspect that a woman or girl is being aided and abetted in obtaining an abortion? Chatting with your best friend about how your teen daughter got pregnant by her boyfriend and she's not sure what to do with the pregnancy? Mentioning to your in-laws about how their granddaughter is being placed on birth control for acne? Disclosing to someone you trust that you've been sexually assaulted and you need to have something done about the resulting pregnancy? what about just the fact that you're an OBGYN by trade and your social circle knows you're staunchly pro-choice? Texas has chosen to cultivate a surveillance culture surrounding the abortion issue. And with the decision of the U.S. Supreme Court, this will only empower other states to pass similar laws. If such laws are allowed to move forward and they pass scrutiny, What's to stop states from using the same citizen informer mechanism to enforce other laws? Laws against the teaching of critical race theory, or in other words, laws against teaching accurate history that is being mislabeled critical race theory. What about voter suppression laws? And our society is already primed for this. We encourage Americans to turn each other in to the police state for conflicts small and large and everything in between. With slogans like, if you see something, say something. And while this may make sense for crimes such as murder, this budding surveillance culture has also led to the phenomenon of white Americans calling the police on black people for barbecuing in the park, swimming in a community pool, bird watching at Central Park in New York City, mowing a neighbor's lawn, and even moving into their own homes. A government hurtling towards a high control form of government like authoritarianism or totalitarianism has a vested interest in keeping collective trust low so that citizens are more loyal to the state than each other, and therefore less likely to dissent. And I mentioned the teaching of accurate history and voter suppression for a reason. It's not a coincidence that Texas has passed laws after the 2020 presidential election that have addressed all three. The banning of essentially most abortions, the censorship of America's racial history, and the ramping up of voter suppression. It's a three-pronged approach that is taking root in various forms all over the United States, led by the Republican Party, evangelical Christians, and other conservative activists. And what is the end game of this approach? It's to keep the same groups in power That have always been in power, even as their numbers as a share of the U.S. population decline. By the year 2045, the U.S. Census Bureau projects that non Hispanic white Americans will be less than half the U.S. population, meaning that white Americans will be a numerical minority in this country. According to a Pew survey, 46% of white Americans and 56% of Republicans believe that a majority non white population. Will weaken American culture. And the Republican Party has seized on these fears, embracing rhetoric such as calling asylum seeking and undocumented immigration an invasion, which is language consistent with a theory called the Great Replacement. The Great Replacement is a far right theory that originated in France that is embraced in white supremacist circles. According to this theory, powerful elites are replacing white populations in western countries with people of color through mass migration and increased birth rates. Anti-Semitic versions of this already racist theory cast the responsible elites as globalists or Jews. The Great Replacement has already inspired domestic terrorism. The terrorist in the 2019 El Paso mass shooting who killed 23 people was reportedly influenced by the Great Replacement, and ranted about an invasion of Latinos from the southern border. GOP leaders such as Donald Trump, House Rep Steve King, and Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, among many others, have embraced Great Replacement adjacent talking points. But even if not all right-wing activists and institutions are explicitly embracing the Great Replacement, the fear of white Americans losing an outsized share of political and social power, and forms all three prongs of the American right wing's march toward totalitarianism. Critical race theory is primarily a graduate-level theoretical framework in legal studies and the social sciences, focused on the intersection of race and U.S. law and institutions. And even in those settings, it's a fairly specialized discourse. It's simply not taught in K through 12 and it's rarely even taught to college undergrads. Even within an American Christian context, initiatives within denominations and parachurch organizations to consider and atone for the ways the church has supported and perpetuated slavery, Jim Crow, and racist systems of oppression today are based on an accurate reading of history and civics, and not specifically the discourse of critical race theory. But what has increasingly been taught in America's grade schools and high schools, at least up until this point, is how racism has played a major role in American history and in our government and societal institutions today. And that is what these bans on CRT are really targeting. If Americans are not taught about our country's racial past and present, it's easier to demonize people of color especially black, brown, and indigenous Americans, for social economic disparities, over-policing, and other social ills. Recently, author and Christian apologist Josh McDowell slammed critical race theory during a speech he gave at a meeting of the American Association of Christian Counselors, arguing that, unlike critical race theory, the Bible only teaches about sin in individual terms, not in terms of systems which is a stance that pretty much ignores that a huge part of how sin is discussed in the Bible is in the context of the sins of nations. But wait, there's more. McDowell went on to say, quote, I do not believe blacks, African Americans, and many other minorities have equal opportunity. Why? Most of them grew up in families where there is not a big emphasis on education, security, you can do anything you want. You can do anything you want. You can change the world. If you work hard, you will make it. So many African Americans don't have those privileges like I was brought up with. End quote. While McDowell later apologized for these remarks, the quote encapsulates what happens when accurate history and an accurate understanding of systemic racism in America's institutions is removed. If Americans are not educated in how we got here, how much easier is it to then blame the oppressed for their own oppression? To say that it's something innate, or some cultural deficiency, that led to inequalities, that's what's so problematic about the fight against so-called critical race theory. Opponents of accurate history call it anti-white, because of the role of white supremacy in so many historical events, and how systemic racism still affects America's institutions. They fear that if we teach the truth, white people will be seen as the bad guy, so-called white guilt. But in fact, it's not anti-white, it's the truth. And the point is not to make white people pay. The point is that if we understand the truth of our past, We can address the issues the past caused in the present, and we can have a better future for everyone. But for those who have long enjoyed privilege, equality may feel like oppression. The problems with the censorship of accurate history go even deeper. Many opponents of teaching accurate history in civics want to replace it with what they call patriotic history. They say the goal is for American children to be proud of their country. Besides the fact that truth should be the goal of what we teach in America's schools rather than pride based on lies, if we teach that the United States can do no wrong and has always been the good guy, any desire to improve this country or make things better for Americans will be painted as unpatriotic, anti-American, even treasonous. Now, if we censor accurate history and civics, It becomes easier to make people of color and other oppressed groups seem biologically, culturally, or morally inferior, or some combination of these. After all, why else are they facing disparities? It's important to note here that greater percentages of Latino and Black Americans voted Republican in the 2020 election than in 2016. So if the GOP truly wants to compete in an America with free, fair, democratic elections, they could build on this to win going forward. But that would also mean not leaning into racism, ethnic bigotry, and xenophobia. And after doing so for the past 50 years, nah, the aim is not just to win, but to keep the same groups in power who have always been in power. If they made a true effort to include others, eventually they would have to share power and they don't want any part of that. Along with the censorship of accurate history, as well as attacks on black-run inner cities by the right, as I talked about earlier, it's easier for conservative politicians and commentators to make the case as for why such people don't deserve to have any say in American governance. Or as has been stated by Republican state leaders in places like Texas and Arizona, while passing voter suppression laws, quality of votes matter more than quantity. An argument also made in defense of voter suppression during Jim Crow. And the goal here is pretty much the same. To ensure that the same groups who have always been in power retain it once they are in the numerical minority. And now we get to abortion. What do laws like the Texas anti-abortion law have to do with white minority rule? Everything along with attempts to stop immigration from non-white and non-Christian countries. Restricting abortion is a guardrail of sorts. The politicians passing these anti-abortion restrictions into law, and the heads of giant corporations funding them, will never be affected. Prior to the 1973 Roe versus Wade decision, those who were wealthy, white, and well-connected had access to safe abortion. It was just everyone else who didn't. So none of these laws will affect them. But as for the masses, it's a whole other story. Birth rates have declined in the United States over the past several decades, as they have in much of the West. Declining birth rates are generally a byproduct of modernization. Fewer children die at birth or in childhood as a society modernizes, and fewer people need to use children as an income source, such as farming, so fewer children can be born. And parents can invest more resources into those few children for improved outcomes once those children reach adulthood. But for a subset of people in the US and Europe, those declining birth rates, especially among those of European descent, keep them up at night. Some embrace conspiracy theories, such as the Great Replacement, to explain why their populations are growing faster through immigration and higher birth rates among their racial and religious minorities. Others don't quite go that far, at least not explicitly. Among evangelical Christians, there has been a great deal of focus over the past several decades on the growth of Christian families, particularly the birth of children. Many point to the higher birth rate among Muslims compared to Christians globally as a way to stoke fears of Christian persecution and Sharia law and motivate evangelicals to get married and produce as many children as possible. This is taken to the extreme in sects such as Quiverful, a sect made famous or infamous through TLC shows such as 19 Kids and Counting and Kids by the Dozen. But even outside of such extremist sects, evangelicalism's focus on families, and in particular fertility, childbearing, and birth rates, is in large part rooted in eugenics. Eugenics is the movement to improve the genetic quality of a human population by selectively breeding in favor of characteristics society deems desirable. Eugenics was quite popular in the 19th century, in the first few decades of the 20th century in the US and Europe, but has largely fallen out of favor in recent years because of the inherent racism, ethnocentrism, and ableism involved and its extensive use in Nazi Germany. For a lot of people, including some who are anti-abortion, this connection of the Christian right to eugenics might be surprising, even disconcerting. After all, many anti-abortion activists point to Planned Parenthood founder Margaret Sanger and her belief in eugenics as a way to paint the organization and the pro-choice movement as a whole as racist. But eugenics has also had a hand in the development of the religious right, Particularly its focus on reproduction and the primacy of the nuclear family. According to historian Audrey Claire Farley, while conservative evangelicals did not openly embrace explicit eugenicist actions such as forced sterilization during the eugenics heyday of the early to mid-1900s, many did support other actions that had similar eugenicist aims, such as laws against miscegenation immigration restrictions, and a focus on heredity in marriage, known at the time as responsible breeding. After the Second World War, Evangelicals began focusing more on positive eugenics. Positive eugenics places the focus less on lowering the birth rates of the poor, immigrants and people of color, which had an obvious stigma due to the final solution and other eugenics practices of the Nazis and more on increasing birth rates among healthy, able-bodied, middle-class white people. While positive eugenics was not an evangelical or even religious idea, evangelical leaders such as James Dobson, founder of Focus on the Family, were early students of positive eugenics, which they later blended with Christian dominionism. According to the social justice think tank Political Research Associates, Christian dominionism is defined this way. "...dominionism is the theocratic idea that regardless of theological camp, means, or timetable, God has called conservative Christians to exercise dominion over society by taking control of political and cultural institutions." Christian dominionism is a huge driver in the push among conservative Christian institutions to control all three branches of federal government, in all levels of government, from the presidency right on down to local school boards and everything in between. This blending of eugenics and Christian dominionism has been apparent in evangelical teachings such as purity culture, courtship, and complementarianism. These teachings seek to police the behavior of women, especially those considered most desirable, for the sake of marriage to the right men so that these couples can do the work of building an army for Christ. Restricting abortion, while not taking action on the underlying interpersonal and social issues driving the choice to terminate pregnancies, nor providing resources to the children who are born, nor their families, is not an oversight. Doing it this way serves a purpose, regardless of any complaints or protestations that abortion restrictions are aimed at preserving all life, that is a complete lie. When restricting abortion while doing nothing else, it means that pregnant women and families with the most resources and advantages are more likely to give birth to healthy babies and to have pregnant women survive childbirth and the postpartum period. For those with resources, it means more babies, more children with both parents, more children with financial and social resources, and the hope for the right wing is to hold off white Americans becoming a minority as long as possible. Those without resources, who are more likely to be poor, more likely to be immigrants, more likely to be people of color, are left to suffer, endure greater death rates, and face much worse prospects in life. While they are not being actively killed off by the policy, death. Is a result. It's a distinction without a difference. The cruelty is the point. To ensure power and control are retained by the same group who has always held that power and control in the United States by any means necessary, that is the true end game. Democracy or life be damned. Thank you very much for listening to Potstar Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Prime, or on your favorite podcast app. Visit potstirterpodcast.com slash download and you'll see the links. If you subscribe, which is completely free, you'll be able to access new episodes once they're released. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give it five stars and leave a review. And I'm always on Twitter. So, if you want my takes right away on the issues of the day, follow me there at Potstirrer Cast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free.